Welcome to this edition of ASME TechCast, where we bring you the innovators, innovations, and issues that push the envelope of engineering. I'm John Kozowitz, Senior Editor of Mechanical Engineering Magazine at ASME.org. Today, I'm speaking with Brandon Burke, Vice President of Policy and Regulatory Engagement for the Business Network for Offshore Wind. The network is a nonprofit educational organization focused on developing the offshore wind industry and its supply chain. The U.S. offshore wind industry is still in a nascent stage, but is poised to develop quickly on the heels of Europe and parts of Asia. And that means standing up a stable supply chain in the U.S., and that's what we'll be talking about today. Welcome, Brandon. Thanks for being here. Glad to be with you today, John, and thanks for having me on the show. So let's get into it. The uh, U.S. offshore wind development is in its early stages. So how would you describe the supply chain at this early stage? There's already been one been built um, off of Block Island, but where does the supply chain stand right now? Yeah, great question, John. Thanks very much. And uh, we have the uh, 30 megawatt Block Island wind farm right there off of Block Island, as you mentioned. And we actually also have a two turbine test facility that's installed uh, about 20 odd miles off of Virginia Beach, but that is in federal water. So that is called the CVAO or Coastal Virginia Offshore Wind Project. But that has been a great development. And that was actually really a, a success, success story during the pandemic because it was uh, completed on time, on budget, and uh, you know with no issues during the pandemic. But um, with respect to the offshore wind uh, supply chain at this point, it is still small relative to mature overseas offshore wind markets. But without a doubt, the market really is growing and fast. Uh, the Biden administration really meant what it said uh, when it when it announced back in March that they'd be taking action to jumpstart the U.S. offshore wind industry. And I can tell you that it truly uh, has come true over the past several months. But one of the things I think that may be of particular interest to listeners of this podcast is that you know engineering is really central to essentially every aspect of the uh, offshore wind project development process and and particularly the feed approach other uh, the feed process the front end engineering design process that has really lent itself to a lot of contracts you know that we're seeing uh, in the early stages of the industry being you know highly technical and engineering focused and one of the things that the network does is track the supply chain. And we've now tracked over 500 contracts in the U.S. offshore wind supply chain uh, to date. And they really are development heavy uh, and engineering focused. And but, you know, although we have a lot of engineering focus now, we really are only going to need more engineers, specifically mechanicals. Um, and there's some estimates that say we'll need nearly a thousand engineers, a thousand more engineers in the U.S. offshore wind industry by next year. And again, that number is only going to continue to grow, which shows the explosive growth of the industry. But what I think is really interesting is that we're already starting to see the commitments across East Coast states to tier one turbine component manufacturing facilities. And, and those are the foundations, the transition pieces, the towers as well as both uh, the array cables, which are the cables between the turbines and the offshore substation, as well as the export cables and the export cables, they send the power to shore. Then we, you know, in addition to those tier one uh, component manufacturing sites, we've also seen an expression of interest for constructing a blade factory in Virginia. 
And then kind of moving beyond the actual uh, project specific component manufacturing, we're seeing a really strong uptick in shipbuilding that is associated specifically with offshore wind. Um, we have southern states like Alabama and West Virginia that are supplying a Texas shipyard with over 10,000 tons of domestic steel, and that's going to be used in the construction of a Jones Act compliant wind turbine installation vessel. That one is uh, being financed by a consortium led by Dominion Energy out of Virginia. We've also seen that Lloyd's Register has partnered with Northeast Technical Services Company to construct a similar wind turbine installation vessel. And there's also some late stage talks about a third vessel. Um, there's also some other announcements regarding other vessels, including super vessel, uh, super feeder offshore wind support vessels, as well as an inclined fall pipe vessel. And they use that for subsea rock installation. And finally, we have uh, multiple service and operations vessels, as well as crew transfer vessels. And those SOVs and CTVs are used during the operations and maintenance phase. And that's another thing that I want to highlight for the mechanical engineering listeners. All of these components, both to the tier one components and on the shipbuilding side, expertise in engineering is required in every one of those contexts. And this need for the mechanical engineering uh, expertise specifically, that extends into the operations and maintenance phase because let's not forget these offshore wind turbines are actually some of the largest machines that humans have ever constructed. And they have to be carefully maintained to reach their full operational lifespans. And remember those O&M jobs are long-term jobs over decades. So that is a lot of information, uh, sort of an update on the offshore wind supply chain and where it stands now, uh, but we're certainly growing and a foothold has been established and it's uh, you know due in large part to a number of years of commitments by state governments, which have really been slammed into high gear uh, by the Biden administration. I, I did want to touch on the issue of vessels and the, uh, and the Jones Act, but uh, perhaps we can do that a little bit later in this. One of the things the network and NARREL, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory in Colorado, is working on is a supply chain roadmap. What is a supply chain roadmap and why is it important now? Another great question. And so just to step back for a moment for uh, those listeners who aren't quite as familiar with the Business Network for Offshore Wind, we're a nonprofit educational organization and our exclusive mission is to develop the offshore wind industry and its supply chain. And, and John, the supply chain uh, roadmap that you mentioned is really a perfect example of the strength of the network's relationships with both government and on the industry side, but also uh, as uh, it's a, it shows how robust the network's data collection to date has been as the offshore wind industry has continued to expand. So the supply chain roadmap, as you mentioned, uh, was awarded via grant funding by the National Offshore Wind Research and Development Consortium. That was established with funding from the Department of Energy. And that grant award was to a team uh, made up of the Business Network, our key partner, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, or NREL, who uh, their offshore wind program is led out of their Colorado office which is very nice and I encourage you to visit, <laughs> um, as well as uh, network member DNV and NREL and DNV will work with us here at the network to map out the U.S. offshore wind supply chain. And again, you know, you're seeing the network here serving as a bridge between government and industry. And that really, you know, we found that to be really critical as we stand up this new clean energy industry that really is a huge economic development opportunity. Um, but to sort of talk about what we're actually going to be doing as part of this project, 
uh, the network's responsibility there will be direct engagement with industry and government and other stakeholders. And we will be expanding the companies that we have already identified. We'll be expanding upon the companies we've already identified in our tool, which is called the Supply Chain Connect tool. Now, simultaneously, NREL and DNV will be developing detailed projections for the U.S. offshore wind supply chain capacity that is going to be necessary to support this first phase, about 10 gigawatts or so of offshore wind development in U.S. waters. So then you'll take that supply chain connect data and that will be compared to the NREL DNV projections and comparing these different data points will aid in the identification of, of major manufacturing and workforce gaps that have to be addressed in order for the U.S. to achieve its new national goal of 30 gigawatts of offshore wind deployed by 2030. There are various large forecasts of uh, the number of gigawatts worth of procurements that are going to be coming through 2030. Um, Numbers I've seen are around $68.2 billion in work and contracts for suppliers. Talk a little bit about the challenges in standing up a supply chain this quickly. Um, projects are being developed through individual states for the most part. So um, uh, how, do you, how do you navigate that? So I would say that one of the key challenges for the U.S. offshore wind supply chain right now specifically is that, you know, as you identified the state and federal offshore wind targets, they have created demand for offshore wind generated electricity that really far outstrips the ability of the U.S. offshore wind supply chain in its present state to meet the needs of those domestic projects. And it's also important to really keep that larger context in mind. Uh, offshore wind is a globally exploding industry with mature markets in Europe and uh, emerging markets in Asia really, really screaming ahead. And it's an opportunity for the U.S. to capitalize, but we need to keep pace with the rest of the world. Uh, investments in offshore wind around the world during 2020 alone totaled $30 billion, and that number is certainly only projected to increase. And so what it means is that the U.S. really has to act strategically and decisively in order to really command the increasing, uh, to, to command the attention that will drive U.S. projects being able to occupy the increasingly limited capacity of the global offshore wind supply chain. But, you know, as I mentioned before, the Biden administration really in the last few months has slammed down the accelerator on the U.S. offshore wind market and, and opportunities in the industry are really expanding rapidly and will continue to do so. But I think one of the things that as we kind of move the East Coast offshore wind market into a, a more mature stage. And certainly as we approach the construction phase and when we start to have multiple uh, utility scale offshore wind projects under construction simultaneously, we really uh, here at the network advocate for states to begin thinking regionally. And what does that mean, thinking regionally, forming a compact? Well, there's a, there's a few different approaches that we've seen. Um, one is absolutely no collaboration. And that's certainly, you know, one way to proceed. But uh, in other respects, there are uh, memorandums of understanding that have been executed between offshore wind interested states. The one that I'm thinking of right now is what is called the Smart Power Initiative, uh, and that's between North Carolina, Virginia and Maryland to really spearhead and drive forward the uh, Mid-Atlantic as more of a uh, uh, influential region in offshore wind. But I think this is really particularly critical for the West Coast market. Um, the west coast of the u.s offshore wind market um, where floating offshore wind is going to be required um, and we uh here at the network and also myself uh personally i really believe that this is an opportunity 
uh, for regional collaboration on a totally different scale. And that's because uh, the floating offshore wind market is at a different phase of maturity than uh, compared to the fixed bottom market. And because of where the offshore wind industry is globally right now, California, Oregon, and Washington working together regionally will command more attention on the global market than any one of those states will acting individually. Um, that's my opinion uh, personally, but also the network's opinion. Uh, the regional collaboration will lead to, in the aggregate, overall better outcomes for all of the states that are interested in offshore wind. Now, uh, as, as mentioned, Europe's uh, market is, is certainly uh, uh, much more uh, mature than what's here in the United States. Um, and the supply chain over there is very near capacity also. So what, what lessons can be learned from that uh, for the U.S. development? And what are the prospects of uh, um, European uh, supply chain members moving to this country? Well, to take your uh, second question first, I would say we're already seeing uh, a lot of attention in the U.S., uh, as I mentioned, uh, from, from European supply chain companies, uh, particularly subsequent to the uh, Biden administration taking office. There's been an enhanced focus on offshore wind and uh, that has created greater market certainty that's beginning to you know attract more and more real attention that is uh, leading to you know significant investments and i had mentioned those uh, tier 1 component facilities earlier but i think a, a kind of a almost more interesting point here is uh you know this question really illustrates why it is so critical uh for the us to establish us based manufacturing and a us based workforce to meet the unique requirements of U.S. offshore wind targets. And one way of approaching this is, is considering this to be in a tremendous opportunity for the development of U.S. innovative solutions and approaches in the offshore wind context. And these kind of really run the gamut um, from 3D printed foundation concepts to cybersecurity enhancements in terms of uh, sort of the remote uh, data monitoring of these uh, facilities, digital twinning, um, and especially uh, in floating wind, which I mentioned before, and that's something I really work closely on. And we really believe that the U.S. right now is an opportunity for leadership in the floating offshore wind space. But again, we encourage that regional collaboration to drive the U.S.'s profile on the international stage because the globe is moving forward with both fixed bottom and floating offshore wind. But, <clears throat> but. With an audience of mechanical engineers on this podcast, one thing in particular that I really wanted to highlight um, is that one of the major innovations in offshore wind turbine technology over the last several years is, in fact, mechanical in nature. Um, and that has been a major shift away from geared drivetrains within the turbine nacelle and toward direct drive systems. You know, that those are the power generation components of the turbines. Now, as the name implies, for those who are less familiar, a direct drive systems, they do not have a gearbox and therefore they have fewer moving parts, which in some respects can reduce maintenance costs. However, these direct drive systems do really require these expensive and, and heavy rare earth minerals. But another innovation that we've seen recently is some of these new direct drive generator designs they reduce the need for these increasingly scarce rare earth minerals and in addition to that we've also seen and this has been pretty widely reported some new advancements in turbine component recycling specifically the blades 
But, you know, I can only say that innovation solutions, innovative solutions will really only become increasingly more crucial as we continue to scale up individual turbine nameplate capacities. And we're already at about 14 megawatts, which is really incredible if you think about it. What are some of the dangers to the uh, uh, to the development of the uh, of the build out here? We'd mentioned the Jones Act earlier, and 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 the Jones Act uh, is is a piece of legislation, long standing piece of legislation that, that requires um, U.S. flagged ships to be working off the coast of the United States, um, and it prohibits um, uh, foreign flagged uh, participation in there. So you mentioned that there were there were a couple of a uh, couple few instances of, of new vessels that were being manufactured already. How big of a how big of a uh, a problem uh, would this be going forward? Well, as you know, as I mentioned before, we do have several uh, at least two firm commitments to uh, wind turbine installation vessels (WTIVs). Um, in the fixed bottom context, those are very speci uh, spe specialized vessels. Uh, they're often referred to also as jack-up vessels because they um, they push their uh, extendable legs down into the seafloor and actually raise the vessel out of the water um, so that a, they have a stable platform uh, to work from. And that's certainly important when you are moving these massive components. Um, in terms of the Jones Act, uh, that is sort of a uh, big question, but uh, the Jones Act is a cabotage law that, that protects coastwise trade. And all that is to say that um, when you are transporting goods and merchandise between two points that are considered within the United States, uh, that must be a U.S. flagged, U.S. crewed, U.S. constructed vessel. And, and, and so certainly the Jones Act has driven American shipbuilding for a number of those, of all of those ships that I mentioned earlier, um, first of which will probably be that Dominion Energy vessel, which is expected to launch uh, during 2023. Um, in addition to that, you obviously have some European um, operators who, you know, many of which who are members of the business network for offshore wind who are investing alternative approaches um, to uh, installing offshore wind turbines while still uh, complying with the Jones Act. Uh, but using an offshore wind turbine installation vessel that's from Europe. And that is sort of the super feeder content, uh, super feeder approach, which was used to install uh, the Block Island wind farm uh, back in 2016 uh, and around then. And so that, that, that approach utilizes a, a sort of large specialized barges that bring the components out to a foreign flagged vessel that will then install those uh, turbines. Now, certainly uh, I'm not going to come down on either side of that issue uh, because we have members on both sides of the question. And frankly, I can kind of see the efficacy of both approaches, but you know, certainly we want to uh, encourage American shipbuilding, but we certainly don't want to uh, you know, exclude foreign vessels in a way that would hold up the build out of the uh, offshore wind um, industry here in the U.S. to, to continue to meet these, uh, uh, these very ambitious goals of the Biden administration that we believe are are, are totally achievable, but um, it will require creative approaches. So what's lacking in the supply chain right now? Is it uh, is visibility an issue? Um, is um, market uh, um, market stability or uh, uh, is is that an issue? Um, 
construction projects, you know, are notorious for going in phases. Um, continuity would be a big thing, I would think. Yeah, I would say <clears throat> continuity as well as timing, as well as sort of parallel pathways is the way I would describe it. Uh, we're sort of, uh, sometimes we like to say we're sort of building the plane as we're flying it. Um, and, and that is doable, but it requires careful decision-making. Um, you can see there's been a few different approaches to sort of the uh, supply chain construction uh, and build out that we've seen in the offshore wind industry. You sort of have the uh, if you build it, they will come approach, which New Jersey has embarked upon with its New Jersey wind port. And then you have sort of a public private partnership approach um, that uh, is, is particularly uh, well evidenced in the state of New York with uh, the Equinor projects, uh, which have, you know, cited uh, major component manufacturing facilities, you know, upwards of 100 miles inland, which, uh, you know, I find really fascinating. It's a very interesting approach, um, a unique approach, and it shows that the uh, economic opportunities associated with offshore wind here in the United States do not only have to be concentrated along the coast. But you also asked uh, about visibility. And I think um, in the in the large scale, at the macro scale, I think all of the key market players are, 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 are many of which are sophisticated multinational firms that operate on multiple continents, I would say to them, visibility is not really a question. There's been a lot of announcements lately with the Biden administration on both coasts, actually in the Gulf of uh, Mexico as well. So we're really seeing a lot of focus, a lot of attention. But I do think that there is a uh, sort of need to increase visibility uh, of uh, visibility as to opportunities for small and mid-sized enterprises here in the United States um, to be able to enter this new industry. Um, it is a long term investment that may require retooling of production lines or, or uh, you know, expansion of services and products that a particular company um, is able to offer relative to what they're doing now. But I think the real big question here is that many states, again, particularly New York and New Jersey, as well as Maryland, and you're seeing this proliferate across other states as well now, there's a big focus on local content. In other words, bringing in local businesses, in-state businesses to participate in the offshore wind supply chain. And one of the challenges there is that some of these companies were not aware of offshore wind two years ago, but you know, the, the lead time in order to be prepared to participate in this industry may be several years. And so we've heard that described by some of our uh, very successful smaller and uh, mid-sized members as, you know, being opportunity ready and understanding that there is a runway and a period of time that is required in order to be opportunity ready, in order to position yourself to be ready to take advantage of those opportunities. And, you know, there's also sort of another challenge in terms of, you know, the procurement processes for each uh, developer are different and keyed to each of those individual um, companies and their internal processes and QA, QC controls. And, you know, I really can't speak to their internal controls, but, you know, again, they're, they're all, it is just a matter of being familiar with and aware of these opportunities and not only being familiar and aware, but also certified or licensed in order to, uh, you know, safely and legally perform the work that they're asked to do so. And one of the great examples that, uh, I, that has been given to me that really, uh, you know, makes a, has made a great impression on me is that, you know, doing certain types of welds the weld is the same physically if you do it in the United States, if you do it in Australia, if you do it in India, or if you do it in Japan or Europe, the physical composition of the welding gases and raw materials are the same. 
But as all of us understand, and it certainly has been, you know, really pushed to the forefront as part of the COVID situation, you know, having the certifications to be able to legally do that same welding work in all of those different locations that I just mentioned, it could take years to get that paperwork. And so that's really where, you know, the network comes in, in terms of trying to um, elevate the opportunities associated with offshore wind and making those opportunities known to these small and mid-sized enterprises and they're American enterprises with Americans who work there. And that's what uh, part of the network's mission is, is to get those American businesses and get those Americans into the offshore wind supply chain and capitalizing on this really once in a generation economic opportunity. Okay, Brandon. Well, we're going to have to leave it there for now. Thank you very much for participating in this again. Anyone would uh, care to listen to other ASME tech casts, please go to asme.org or your favorite podcast app. Again, I'm John Kozowatz with Brandon Burt today. Thanks, Brandon, and thanks to all of you for listening.